Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I'm very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. My conversation today is with Mario Brown, principal and founder of Affordable Upstate. They are a multifamily affordable housing community empowerment operator, investor, and owner, primarily in Greenville, South Carolina, but soon to be expanding to a few other markets in the Southeast. This is a phenomenal story about bootstrapping a company from 2017 to now, they've raised $55 million from investors. They have close to 1,700 units across multiple properties. They have an investment management company. They have a construction management company. They have a property management company, and they have been doing some very innovative things in their space. We discuss how Mario eliminates property tax from his PL and his investments by working with local municipalities, what value add means to him, why he is so focused on empowering his residents and so focused on making sure his residents live a quality life. We talk about how he raises capital, where he's going in the future, and what the opportunity is in his space. Please enjoy my conversation with Mario Brown. Mario, I thought an awesome place to start would be for you to kind of break down how you ended up in Greenville and why Greenville is so interesting. 
because I recently like posted something on Twitter and asked what the next Austin was. And all these people pinged back Greenville. So there must be something going on there. I've never been there, but would love to know why you love it. Yeah. And I think I could maybe do you one better by giving you a little bit of the history of how we got to today, because this is my hometown. I just so happen to live in a place that's lately become attractive to outside dollars. But really, Greenville's thing is is parks and recs. We're in the foothills of the Blue Ridge mountain chain, right between Charlotte and Atlanta. So, you know, growing up, going outdoors, getting into all, all types of, you know, hikes and campsites and things that are just so accessible for us here. The, the second kind of, uh, other than like the natural resources, we've had the same mayor in the city of Greenville for, I think, 25 years. So in terms of continuity and working off the same plan, you know, he's been beating that same drum and it's really cool to see it this last, I'd say post-COVID, right? Post-COVID, we've really started to see an acceleration, right? The rate of change, like those, you know, five to 10% on the population we had pre-COVID is a lot versus, you know, small increases earlier on, but it's been cool. It's like we talked a little bit about earlier, it, it's awesome to participate in, but not every member of our, you know, our population gets to, to engage with what we call, yeah, that Greenville, right? Because there's a Greenville in every, you know, I think there's a Greenville in every state and the marketing firm was trying to come up with a phrase for us and it's, yeah, that Greenville. Not everyone gets that, that, the marketing side. I think it, it, there, there's also a nasty underbelly in terms of not really having affordable housing for those that have lived here and, and are from here like myself. What are some of the big drivers to Greenville? I guess during COVID, it was a lot of people just working from home. And as that starts to fade away and people go back to the office, what is the continued momentum for Greenville? Yeah, so really, again, a little bit of history. You know, we're, we're high school manufacturing. Textiles was our thing from late 1800s to mid 1970s, 80s. We pivoted to other skilled manufacturing after the textile industry died. So BMW, Floor Daniel, Lockheed Martin. So we met, you know, we're, we're making really advanced automotive and, you know, for Lock, Lockheed, the F-16s, we make those here. That's kind of the base. And then what's happened over the last 15 years to attract boomers is just a really walkable downtown that, you know, that's family centric and, you know, it's clean, safe, decent and new. And, and really the last 15 years, very affordable relative to Los Angeles. I want to go into multifamily and housing a little bit because this is what you do. This is where you live. Everyone in the United States talks about this housing shortage. I'm in hospitality, so I don't necessarily see it and feel it every day. But can you help me understand and kind of frame the issue around the housing shortage and what the problem is both in Greenville and in the larger Southeast because that's where you tend to play? Yeah. And, and Jake, on the back end, I think I've got a challenge for you that I'd love to talk about how I think you might lit, like experience affordable housing in terms of your the employees that work at your sites and what you pay them relative to what they pay for their, their rent. But, you know, really the uh, affordable housing is a very, what we've learned is it's, it's a very taboo subject. It's very hard to define. Different folks have different impressions when you say it. But overall, we're just talking about rents or housing that is 30% of an individual's earned income, right? That's, that's kind of what we're talking about. You know, I live in affordable housing, Jake. We're just getting to know each other. I know you live in affordable housing because it's, a, it's a for, housing affordable to us, right? We went to the bank, 
they did looked at our debt to income. They said, hey, this is affordable for you. Let me give you an, a, a mortgage. So I, th- I think that is kind of what we're, we're really talking about folks that earn, you know, at and below the median income. So that's kind of to frame it. And then from there, the kind of crisis that continues to get worse is that the housing supply, right? Less supply, more demand equals higher prices, right? So I think for our small market in Greenville, you know, it really feels like we have to build a, a new house every time someone moves here. So when we do that, that house or that unit has today's cost of construction tagged to it. So by default, the owner of that property has a charge X for rent to cover his cost. So, you know, for some belt markets in the Southeast that are experiencing really new growth, it's really, a, we've never had the, the kind of this over this oversupply that like large Rust Belt markets like Detroit and others had and, and built around the 1950s, 60s, and, uh, and 70s. So you, you're seeing a lack of supply, drive prices up, and then you're seeing, you know, any new supply have today's cost of construction tagged to it via, via the, the sales price or the rent, rental rate, depending on the business plan. So it's really, as in a nutshell, I think just housing that's affordable to those living at, you know, at or below the median income within a certain population. That's a rough way to, to approach it. But is that, does that make sense, Jake? It makes sense. I'm trying to understand, though, if it's such a big problem, everyone's talking about it. It seems like the most obvious investment out there, particularly in these Southeast markets where a lot of people are moving to and they didn't already have the housing and now it has to be built. Why, though, are there still challenges both on the government side and certainly now on the financing side where there's not just tons and tons and tons of capital flooding in to get this done now because clearly there's a huge demand gap? Yeah, it's because the math doesn't math. Right. So, you know, to build new supply, say we're into it, say, say a, a developer is going to build a new project with, and, and he's going to pay $200,000 a unit to bring something out of the ground. Unless the government steps in and grossly subsidizes either the construction, the bricks and sticks, or the tenants, there's no way that an individual making 80% the median income can ever become a tenant of that property. So that tenant is left to pick from other older naturally occurring assets within the market he goes to look there whoa those are those are taken you know those are full so that's why we see homelessness rates go up right because there's not the options and it costs the, the barrier of entry to build something we, it requires the government's influence inputs su- subsidies and anytime we involve the government it slows things down i think that's you know i think if it were just left to the market to figure this problem out I think very much like the mill developers of the 1910s and 20s, they build a village, right? They build a village around the manufacturing plant so their employees could get to work. But we, we, we've left it to the government to solve this problem for us. That's why there's all talk and very little action that relates to actually yield of affordable units in the market. And what's the unique like inflection point or business opportunity you're seeing in being able to stomach dealing with the government in order to get some of these affordable or workforce housing projects done? Yeah. So at our core, Jake, when we started out, we had a heart for affordability and really serving lower, I'd say lower income parts of our community, really purely out of decency. Like we wanted to offer them a different product. Like we, we thought that 
that the deferred maintenance that the slumlord maintained was unacceptable no matter what the rate he was charging. So once we kind of kind of got through that, we started to learn of incentives that we could layer onto our deals. So, you know, in some ways, one market's value-add investor is as another man's community housing provider, right? So we started to really learn that we could layer on incentives in an enterprising format without all the red tape. And we had, you know, we had to kiss a lot of frogs to kind of find programs made sense for 1970s, 1980s garden style apartments that we're buying. You know, on on, uh, the other end of the spectrum to create new product, the government has a program called Low Income Housing Tax Credits or LIHTC. We didn't think we wanted to be LIHTC guys because there's really no value add. There's really no incentive for going in there and reimagining a space. You just got to get really, really good at the bureaucracy. And that what those weren't the type of incentives that we wanted to lean into. We kind of understood that. But the property tax abatements and others that we could leverage through an affordable housing nonprofit corporation were, were, were the ones that really kind of, yeah, to your point, to use your words, that was the inflection point. Wow, we can make money and do good at the same time here. We don't have to pick. We can keep Miss Ethel's rent and unit one, you know, below market while also delivering yield to our investors. So I think that for me, at least, that was that inflection point. How have you thought about, I mean, obviously there's a feel good component to workforce housing and investing in your community and affordable housing, but how have you thought about entering multifamily at the B level, call it the Walmart for everybody, as opposed to doing something at the A level? Why is the investment opportunity there much more interesting to you? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, anything that we or I try and take on, my vetting is pretty simple. Like, can I bring myself to it? Can I bring my experiences? For me, it was I represented high-end custom home builders in our market for a decade. From hello and uh, a Pinterest board to, you know, really delivering final plans and specs and a contract to our project manager. And spending all that time on 12 to 15 projects a year, you know, for me, I thought, hey, how can I align my strengths and my skills with a true community need? Not that this doctor, this orthopedic surgeon doesn't need me, but but how can I have my community benefit from kind of the training and expertise that I've been exposed to and given? So, you know, there's a simple phrase that one of my mentors says that I love is serve the masses, eat with the classes, serve the classes, eat with the masses. You know, Walmart's Walmart, right? And I think they're the low price leader. That's that's what we want to be as well, right? We want to actually serve more people with lower rents and really, you know, create a situation that's both profitable again, investable, but also lower than the next guy can charge. So it's it, yeah, I, I do think it's a it's an it's it's a weird point in which we entered. I entered multifamily, but I do think it was purely with you know the, this kind of desire to have social impact and. You know, I think most folks that do have that desire, maybe the assumption is that they are devoid of market skill and market requirement in terms of compensation. <laughs> it seems to me that a lot of people went into like 70s, 80 class B product because they didn't want to build new things and they could fix those up and then charge market rents. So like hearing you talk, I'm thinking that a lot of the affordable product actually almost got upgraded to more market rate product, which 
was probably a necessity of the cost to not only make the improvements, but also buy the assets. Your strategy is actually investing in existing properties and then tweaking it to make it affordable. So maybe you can like break down what you're actually doing and why you can afford to keep it affordable and not push it into a class B plus or A minus property. Yeah, like all of your your listeners and all of us that follow you on Twitter, we know like it's such an amb- ambiguous grading system, right? A, B, C, D, what? Like, you know, but I love using the decades, right? So a 1970s product, why is it that, you know, we can go in, do a you know, traditional value add in terms of amenitizing the property, giving it the curb appeal we all know it needs, and, and then renovate units as they become vacant? How are we able to keep the inherited tenants rent lower? And that's because what we do is we've got a nonprofit that we that we use to layer on affordable housing incentives from the government. And the the safe harbor provision, the, the IRS has a safe harbor provision that states opt into. There's several states that do this. So North Carolina, South Carolina, that's kind of where we play. However, once the state opts in, there's a clear kind of mandate in terms of the, the amount of the property that needs to be affordable to 60% AMI or area median income individuals and 80%. What we found is that our area, like most Sunbelt towns, are it's, it's growing. AMI is skyrocketing. It's it's up six to seven percent a year in the last five years. So the restrictions, therefore, are, are higher than what we can actually than we what I think we could actually charge in rent. So the restrictions aren't restrictive, and we're still able to add NOI because we're we're cutting twenty percent of our operating expenses in South Carolina property taxes are huge and they're they're high. So I think it's really that tax abatement and the ability to run the business this, in the same way that kind of allows us to do it. And I think the, the biggest kind of challenge for us is, you know, NOAA assets or naturally occurring affordable housing, those 1970s and 1980s garden style apartments going to market, having someone from, you know, I love the state of New York, but someone from New York buying it, seeing that it's, there's going to be a Whole Foods down the street. And instead of putting 15 to 20K a unit in, they put 50K a unit in and they go get the rents, right? So I think that now what options are there for that single mom, right? What options are there for the person that works on the floor for you at one of your hotels? You know, what options are there? Because again, to build it, it's going to be even higher, right? So for the, for us, we want to go in and preserve those natural assets that a community has. And while also... You know, and that's our, I'd say, our impact on the problem. Jake, we can't be uh, so arrogant to think that we can actually solve the problem. It's going to require a lot of solutions from new supply to pre- preserving the old supply that you have to, you know, wraparound services to help folks with economic mobility. But I think for us, the fact that we're kind of, we're mission-driven, we're mission-driven for profit, that's how we're able to, to make it work for us. To sum it up, like what one of the things that you've been able to figure out is to remove fully or a big portion of the property tax from your PL. Yeah, that's right. And is that something that can stay forever, that you can sell into a new buyer? How does that work? Yeah. So the way that the 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 statute's written, and it is it is statutory, right? So it's by right. There's not a negotiation at the county courthouse that one has to do, but it's flexible. It's a renewal every year. So there's a compliance that you have to kind of keep that you got to stay within, but we're able to remove it if we wanted to and sell the property with with or without the abatement, right? I think as you 
get this, the tax abatement is worth more to us than the next guy, right? Because it's impacting our, our NOI much higher than it, if he bought it and tried to take it to market. So we are long-term holders. You know, we've sold a few assets, but we really want to preserve these assets for the duration. And so we're looking at recapitalization and how that could look with leaning into, you know, more Freddie and Fannie debt and other ESG or affordable housing kind of equity and, and solutions. But yeah, it's when you cut 20% of your operating expenses, you know, that makes everything easier. It's pretty awesome. You're basically trading renovating, which has a ton of risks and costs with having to deal with the government in order to get to a similar NOI, I would think, or a similar yield, basically, relative to your cost going in. What's the risk that you place on effectuating your plan with the government? Is it something that's complicated? Can anyone do it? Have you guys figured out a special way? So I don't, I don't know if beating your head against the wall is special, then yeah, maybe we, maybe, maybe we have figured out a special way, but I, I think that we have a high threshold for pain. <laughs> That's right. So I think the execution risk associated with value add, I think guys are really starting to see that. And, and, and really LPs are starting to see like, I mean, a lunch with JLL and they were, they were talking about how investors were writing off whole decades of, of multifamily because they associated pain with those assets. Those assets that they gave a GP dollars on so he could go in and do this robust value add plan. And now he's in trouble. So I think anytime we can de-risk by making the value add more paperwork, which is kind of what this tax abatement is. And we'll talk about some of the, you know, the legislative risk and how we try and hedge that. But, you know, we think kind of if we had to pick, we're definitely going to pick the paperwork, right? Even though we have a vertically integrated construction company, even though we've got a property management company that we started this year and we, we are local to this market, I still prefer the paperwork because I have children, right? And, and, and each project takes so much out of you as it relates to the abatement. And, you know, this is, I, I really don't, the, the legislative risks that exist, you know, I, I'm really having a tough time imagining a world where politicians and local stakeholders get enough gall to say, hey, we've solved the affordable housing issue Let's let Mario and his 1,500 units of naturally occurring affordable housing, let's just let it go to market. So that doesn't allow me to sleep at night that much. But what does is having attorneys that are in Colombia and that, are, that we're meeting with on a monthly basis. And our council is kind of lockstep with kind of the laws and what's, what's happening. So you can't impact anything if you don't know what's happening. So we'll, we'll start with knowing. And we don't know what we'll have to do to impact it if there is, is a threat to the legislation. I'm going through the flywheel and it's kind of fascinating listening to you talk because you think the government is highly incentivized to solve the affordable housing problem because if they don't, they can end up driving businesses out of the town and the locality because they eventually aren't going to be able to afford to pay people what they need to live in that place. Like taking New York, for example, I mean, the cost to go out to dinner at a decent restaurant in New York has gotten so high for a couple. And that's because they've got to pay their workers more. In all my hotels, our employment wages have gone up considerably. We've been able to outpace a lot of it with revenue growth. But how sustainable is that? And I think it's a direct result of availability of housing and people demanding more pay. It's not necessarily a fairness thing or a quality thing. It's more a necessity thing. There's just nowhere to live to work in this location. And if they can't earn that wage to cover the 
cost of housing, they'll just move somewhere else. Yes. How can we look at, you know, the Big Apple and the, you know, the really the greatest city on earth and the kind of problems and perils that it faces? We know it's a microcosm, but looking at our little town and saying like, hey, if folks can't afford to live within five to 10 miles of this restaurant or this hotel, then one, they're going to choose somewhere else or I'm going to have to pay them more money. And as the population and the employee and the employees within a market uh, become more expensive, it stifles economic development, right? Like it stifles the, the, the guy, Jake, that comes in and says, hey, I want to open something really cool right here next to the river. You look at the population and you say, well, I can't pay X, Y, and Z because that, now that's a different bet if I have to charge that per room, right? Like versus being able to charge a little bit less. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's really an economic proposition. And I think that it's the local government, it's the state government that really should be focused on this, this issue. Just because I just don't believe that any, any machine so big and so vast can understand like what's happening in these markets and how AMI is probably not a great indicator of affordability. That, you know, if everyone moving here has more money than the people that are here, AMI is going to go up but I still have the same job working on the same manufacturing floor. Like what gives, you know, like, why is that considered affordable? So I think that it, it really is local government. It really is the local business person like yourself, like this, you know, for us, I mean, this makes sense, right? It, it, this isn't complicated. <laughs> we need to keep their housing, the employees housing lower so we can charge less for our good or service. And we want to be in business to do it. So like, so no, it isn't within our job description, but we should care about where they live. 100%. All right. I want to go back to how you got into real estate because we've just talked about so much stuff, but I want to go back and understand your story, how you got into real estate, and then we could talk about how you built the company. Yeah, sure. That uh, sounds good. So really, the, my foray into real estate started on the brokerage side, graduating from college, thought I wanted to go to law school, but had the good fortune to have a few clients that were mentors of mine. And they all happened to be working in real estate. And I got into a great law school, but with no dollars. And I said, wow, that's expensive. These guys didn't go to law school. They seem to be li living a decent life. So got into brokerage of new construction and over a decade of time, really leaned into doing my own projects, learning how to, to manage a team and how to bring something from a vision to application and execution. But I'd say, what I'm learning today, Jake, and I, and I say, I said this earlier, but my background is I, I try and let it always lead what I do. So when, when I was, you know, when I was four years old, you know, I was adopted. My mom was 15 when she had me and she lost me when I was a year old. And, you know, there was an accident. She was uneducated, disenfranchised in an apartment complex, didn't know what to do and decided just not to take me to the hospital. Neighbor saw that. And I was in DSS from one to one to four. My greatest kind of passion is to really, is really our tenant. Really the fact that I'm in a position as an owner to impact the way they live, to impact what they're enfranchised to, to include them into the fold of our community. So we have really cool programs like, you know, a missional resident that, that lives at our properties. So that when the baby rolls off the bed, that there's someone that has some relational capital with uh, you that you can go ask him, should I take him to the hospital? Right. So I feel like for me, the work that I do is very much community housing, right? Real estate's a vehicle that I use to do that, you know, that I do that through. And 
but it really is the impact on, on our community and folks that are very much like myself, because what I found is most folks that own multifamily in my market are not from here. So, you know, I'm not saying that I always get it right, but I, I bet I get it right more times living here than if I didn't. What are the things that you see living in the market that you invest in that other people out of state or out of my market might not see, whether that's opportunities for investment, opportunities to enhance your tenants' lives, opportunities to create a new business, opportunities to like do some different, a different value add. What, what are some of those things that you see? Yeah, the biggest things, and I mean, I think anyone could use this, it's like paying attention to the local publications. I know where the development's going. I know where everything's going, right? I mean, if I'm reading the comprehensive plans, if I'm uh, an engaged citizen like I am, then I know where things are moving, growing. I know where the city's annexation plans are. Just some of that nuance that I think really kind of kind of cuts risk down the road. If you know, just you know, if you were to buy a, a site, hey, I know the city's going to be doing X, Y, Z. They've already got this plan. There's been another development announced over here with Whole Foods. Yeah, I'll buy this little piece and sit on it and hold it. Right. So I think that's like the the kind of the, the a big piece. But then it's the schools, right? Understanding the demand that exists locally for the different school systems and, and, and who will pay more. What is Malden High School, for instance? What's that worth to a resident? I know what that's worth, right? So I can, I can adjust my rents there versus the property that I have with an inferior school. How did you decide to make the change from working for someone to becoming an entrepreneur. And if you compare it to today's time, I think a lot of people are evaluating this decision. Like often people move when there's a distress period or a down period. So maybe you can talk through the timing of real estate cycles in the context of starting your own business. Yeah, I don't, and I, and I didn't do a great job of it, Jake. I mean, I'd love to hear at some point your story, but no, for me, it was really a no-brainer for, like, I, I didn't use a lot of information. I, I knew that I'd done a few deals. I'd bought a few multifamily complexes. I knew I was making commission from the, the builders I worked for and that that wasn't a sustainable route for me as I wanted to have children and spend more time with my wife. I didn't want to be married to the phone. I think that, you know, in terms of, of, of cycles, I think, you know, what is it? It was the blood in the street quote always comes to mind, but you know, and, and, and I don't think it does great justice to this question because it's, it makes it even scarier, right? It's scary. It's scary already. But then when you add like the blood in the street and all these cryptic, you know, metaphors of war, I think it, it only paralyzes one. So I think for me, I've always had a bias toward action. And I think that is the key, right? To have a bias toward action, to put the damn boat in the water. To know that there's always another measure, there's going to be another measurement you can take and another detail that you can write down. But until you put the boat in the water, you're still competing with all the people standing there with you. <laughs> when you put the boat in the water, now you, you mean, this is the odds of it. You're, you're much better off, right? You've, you've gotten bold enough to go try it. So I'm not great at time and cycles and markets, but I, I do know in terms of the psychology of it, talking to friends and mentors and other folks that, you know, there's having a, a kind of a sincere bias toward action and knowing that until you're able to actually tie an action with this information, it's worth nothing. Zero. 
What about partnership made you want to start this with someone else? Because I got gaps, Jake. I know myself. I think I've gotten to know what my gifts and my strengths are. I've got the ability to raise money. I love being in the deal. I love managing operations. I love storytelling. But what I'm not great at, Jake, is following up with emails and being really like and giving the bank the another PFS signed with an updated Excel sheet. So understanding my gaps allowed me to really partner to that. So I don't actually have to be someone that I'm not. I don't have to live this miserable life of doing tasks that I'm not good at, nor do I want to be good at. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's a good partnership, right? Where I'm able to provide some things that my partner, those aren't his strengths, and he's able to provide that for me. But it takes two people that are honest with themselves about what they bring to it. You know, it's not about being something that we're not. It's just about knowing who we are. Was the business plan at the time obvious to you guys? Or were you just like, well, we want to go into real estate. Let's do it together and we'll find opportunities. And then you happened into residential or multifamily. Or did you have a plan very clear, very specific from the outset? I'd like to say that we had a plan, but we met at a a program called Leadership Greenville. The Chamber of Commerce in our town put together this program for young leaders. It's a 10-month program, and each month they expose you to different issues in the community. The thought is, hey, let's expose these young leaders, and hopefully one of them can, or all of them can, learn how to tie one of their strengths, professional skills, with a real community need. I think both of us got lit up over this idea of affordable housing, and I'd done just enough in real estate to understand that it could be profitable, and that it wasn't just, it wasn't, wouldn't be all philanthropy. My partner comes from Raymond James, the financial planning background, so, you know, I think we both knew the, the potential of it, but I, it didn't make it any less scary, you know, in terms of putting ourselves out there and really trying to develop a thesis. I think the key to what we did, and, and Jake, I'd love to hear if this parallels with any of your experience, but it's, it's proven concept. Like I proved concept to myself before I, I went to a partner. Me and my partner proved concept with each other before we went to LP investors Right. So it's all about proving concept, even and obviously it's going to be on something smaller. But I don't know. Have you seen that in your business and as and all the folks that you've kind of interviewed as a is there any parallel with any of the folks that you talk to? I think the consistent theme is that most people are constantly evolving in their business and are constantly tuning how they operate and what their strategy is. I'm not saying that strategy changes every six months. But I think it's rare in the people that I've met and that have mentored me that they pick a strategy in year one of business and they hold true to that strategy all the way through. They might pick a very, very broad theme, but they're constantly evolving through what that means and pivoting from mistakes. For me, I just love real estate. So I like did a house in high school that I now it's called flipping back then. I don't know what it was called. And then one in college. And I always wanted to be in hospitality because I just worked in hotels growing up. And I liked that it could impact people. And it was very active, engaged real estate. Now I'm looking back on it. It's like, you know, it's the hardest form of real estate I think there is. But it's something that I love. But I'm constantly tweaking and pivoting like, oh, we want to focus on this. We want to focus on that. And I think that's okay. 
And I don't think you have to pick something and then that has to be the one thing you do forever or the one strategy you do forever. No, to- I totally agree. I totally agree with that in terms of change being a basic law of business, right? Being pliable and, under- and being able to be in the game and change and edit the thesis. You know, I think for us, we did see some value in, in hunkering down on a couple deals and, and saying, hey, at least we can do this part. We might not know all the affordable housing incentives so to layer onto this or know all the ways that we can do this in the future if we continue to grow scale and brand equity, but we can at least do the value add part, uh, f- the physical value add part. And you know the rest, we'll see where it takes us. But yes, there I think there's several businesses within businesses, right? I mean, the number of functions that you you yourself do within your organization or have done within your organization you know, you could be a full-time pro at all of those, right? As you, as you grow an organization, I think that's, that's what my point was and is, it's like, you know, at least picking one or two things when you transition from a W2, proving concept on that and saying, this is going to be my job. The rest I'm an investor on, right? And and I'm going to come to work every day and go to the project site and do this and do that. It allowed us to kind of build some confidence quicker than I think I would even guess we could. So it sounds like your first deal didn't actually have all of the affordable incentives or funny money that you soon later figured out in it. So talk about your first deal and maybe how that was different from the deals you're doing now. So in, in terms of you know, the project, uh, C-class property in a, a part of town owned by a mom and pop owner who keeps their financials on a legal pad, you know, that, those are similarities. However, the, the, the sophistication of our approach is what's changed. But my very, very first multifamily was an eight unit. I bought it off the MLS. And I did this myself before even going to Brian, my partner, to partner with him. I wanted to know what I could bring to that partnership, right? So buy the deal and intimate with it every day. Thank God it was before children. I'm going to the project site every day. I think we paid 200 grand. I paid 200 grand for that deal. And we put in, the bank loaned me about 150 grand to do CapEx. We made it better, had a third-party property manager working with me, and we pushed rents. And a year and a half later, I was able to sell it for $700,000. And you know that was just all off the income approach, right? So I understood, all right, wow, the income approach does work. But what happens to that property now? All right, well, now that they bought it at 700, the rents are going to be higher and higher and higher. What are some ways that we can hold on to an asset and, and, and derive uh, our, our yield from the operations? Right, which I feel like you talk about hotels. I mean, I mean, there's so much edge on like just really strong uh, operations. I mean, at the proper hotel in Santa Monica, I've never seen a bar that w- that made me want to buy things in the rooms, and I, and I bought so many things because they had amazing operations. Right. I was uh, recently at the proper in Austin, and that place just pumps harder than any other hotel in Austin, a buddy of mine runs proper. And I asked him like, how much food and beverage do you guys do here? He told me the number, I almost fell over. And it's amazing what they were able to create. And Santa Monica is not much different. But I can tell you, because I worked with them when I was in college, I interned for them, that that model like wasn't there at that time, it evolved, and they only figured it out once they got into it. I'm curious to know, like, what were some of the things you learned from that first deal that were light bulb moments that even as you evolved, 
has stuck with you and has had an impact? Yeah, I think the the very very first thing was what I think I bought that rinse for four fifty, and we'd go in, we'd renovate them. I got fleas the first time I went in with my contractor, and we were able to quickly rent that unit for nine hundred bucks. You know, after it went vacant, and I, and I guess it dawned on me like, wow, that's considered affordable both on both ends, right? At four fifty and nine hundred back then. So just understanding that affordable. There is a business strategy to creating an affordable unit. That was one, one piece. I think two was like the synergy and amenities at the property and how we pull people outdoors, right? So by cleaning up the site, by putting walking trails in, by parkifying the property, we tap into really what in single family neighborhoods they charge a premium for um, old trees, large plant material. Like things that you can't quite put into a new development because it would cost forever to get, cost a lot to, to put in a, a 30-year-old tree or a 40-year-old tree, right? So they put in a little one in. Those big trees came with these properties. So how do I lean into those natural assets? So there, there are some inherent natural assets. You know, you, you can't add value through business and it still be considered affordable. And that that it's on it's incumbent upon us as owners to, to get folks out of their unit. That makes the unit larger, right? If I if you, if you like hanging out in the back at the picnic table or next to that big oak tree that we put a seat around and a little informational thing that tells you about what live oak trees are, if you like hanging out there, now we've made the unit larger and made you proud of something that's naturally inherent to your properties. Do you think that's a miss that a lot of, because a lot of people in the past couple of years came into multifamily and I feel like they're like, hey, I'm doing value add. Oh, what'd you do? Oh, I painted the building. Is that what you were seeing a lot of in your markets or in other people that you were reading about or other deals that you were seeing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a, it's a short answer. I think it's no different than me saying, wow, proper hits what on food and bev? Let me go do that. Let me, let me, like, it's, it's to your, to your point, it's not until they got into it, right? Not until they were actually, you know, had other skills they proved concept on that they were, they had the wherewithal and the operational skill to say, now, how do we, become known for something within this that's small, that no one can compete with, that drives yield. And I think like, so yeah, we've seen a, a lot of that in, the, in, in our market and it, it just blows my mind. You know, that if it were that easy, I mean, at, at one point it was that easy, right? You know, that- Capital's <laughs> cheap, it's easy. Yeah, so but I think the lack of connection between the resident and that improvement is really the, the I think the, what the big miss is, right? It's not just painting the exterior, you know, if if painting a mural, you know, invigorates the kids in a neighborhood, makes them excited where they live. All right, that that makes sense. But if just painting the exterior white or whatever color, just because you think that's value add, that's not connected to the tenant, and that's not worth the two hundred and fifty dollar increase you think you're going to get from that. Why was it important to you to create a property management company and become vertically integrated as opposed to just hiring managers to run your deals? We worked with so many managers over the years, Jake. I mean, I'd say eight, nine, 10, and obviously we're in this market. So these are friends and colleagues and folks that we see at church on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, never, I was never quite satisfied with the impression that our management companies or third-party managers would have with residents, the way they communicate with them, 
We really want to be a place of economic mobility. I really do mean it when I say I care about the tenant. And that's the one thing that, that's my one thing, right? That's it. I know that if I care about my residents, then that will kind of lead me down the right road on a lot of, a lot of different things. So, you know, never quite satisfied with that. And, and in terms of, you know, the environment that we're in, you know, I think we're looking to tie down anything we can in terms of operational cost, or at least have them fixed to a point where we uh, understand them and know they're, they're legit. So I think it was twofold, right? One, wanting to have more impact on our resident. We have some really cool programs around economic mobility that I could never get our third party managers to do. So, you know, we have a program called FlexPay. They can pay their rent when they get paid, right? If everyone's living paycheck to paycheck, if the average savings rate is lower than it's ever been, then why, what gives? Why is this person that lives below the median income incurring a larger percentage of fee, overdraft fees, late fees? Why is their life riddled with that? Whereas you and I, I don't know, it's less than probably 0% that, uh, that we have late fees and things like that because we can move the money around and balance it. So giving them that flexibility, getting rid of the deposit, you know, I think it, that was one that I had to really come around to, but there are insurance, there's insurance that you can buy that gives us double the coverage that the deposit would have given us and only at a fraction of the cost for the resident. So instead of coming up with first and last month's rent, they come up with first month's rent and 200 bucks. And now it's a lower barrier of entry to get into one of our properties. And lastly, I think it, it report, reporting positive payment to the credit bureau. If I tell you that I want you to kind of, we want to be a stepping stone and not the destination that I want you to buy a house one day because I'm securing the demand that exists for this, then I need to report your positive payments to the credit bureau. So things like that, things that actually are, are structural changes in my mind are why, you know, we, we had to start a property management company to really be who we say, just be the, be the people that we say we are, right? I mean, I think so much of this is, is, is not getting it all right but it is aligning yourself, your words with your actions. One of the cool things about starting your own business is you're starting your own business and there's no one that's been there for 20 years to say, well, we do it this way because we've always done it this way. What are some of the other kind of innovative or unique ways that you've chosen to run the operating business and the investment business because it's a new real estate company as opposed to one that's been around for 20 or 30 years and is tied to some older technologies or strategies or methods? Uh, one, we love ChatGPT. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think there, there are a lot of ways I think that we approach it in a little bit a different way. And I think one thing you're not hitting, Jake, I think intentionally is the frustration that comes when you have to create every single thing, right? So it's it's one thing to like, have like, hey, a fresh perspective and there's no like established precedent. But but my goodness, each little thing has to be, it's, it's more mental energy to come up with. So those are the joys and pains of entrepreneurship. I, I think for us, the, the biggest alpha we've been able to create has been the connection between our investors and our residents, right? I think that is the, the most innovative thing that we do. Instead of reducing ourselves to, to being just another GP doing value add in South Carolina, you know, we are doing workforce and affordable housing as, as community housing providers. So, you know, our, our investors are all retail folks, friends of ours, buddies of ours, guys that own businesses locally. Uh, you know, we've been able to raise $55 million of 
of investor equity that understands what we're doing, that understands that this is needed. And I think just the connection of those types of folks that would never otherwise meet, I think that is, you know, for me, the that, that's the most innovative piece about it. But love chat GBT, love, you know, we use some other AI tools within our property management company like Colleen, who does AI, I won't say it's AI generated, yes, AI generated collections. So she's texting, she's calling, she's doing all these, all these great things that um, allow us to have fewer folks working here. And, 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 and conversely, it allows us to pay the folks that we do work for, that do work for our property management, pay them more money and they have less work to do because property management is a thankless job. Well, if you like chat GPT, you're going to like chat PDF. I like upload PDFs basically, and then you can interact. You can ask it like, you know, when is the rent due or what's my lease payment and all this kind of stuff. It's pretty amazing. I think what I'm not struggling with, but need to kind of digest is pushing too much out to the team and over-optimizing stuff that isn't going to get fully used or we don't have the bandwidth to just absorb it all at one time. And doing it piecemeal has been one of the ways that we've been able to do it correctly. But I still screw it up most of the time anyways. No, and I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think it's, you know, as we designed Noah, this property management company, I use a lot of AI plug it in PDFs and documents that I liked the, like the reference points and really helping us think through the terminology of, you know, instead of property managers, we call them community housing managers. Instead of leasing agents, they're community leasing representatives. So a lot of that, I'd say vision and like designing work was really helpful for me in terms of an application. I'd say, you know, AI, like most things, well, not like most things, I think it's just, it's still so kind of, I'm not sold yet on like the the scaled impact of my business because it does require so, so many like workarounds or little little to dos and to knows. But I, as a as just a per, as a worker within my own business, I do like using it. What's a big mistake you've made in building the property management company? Maintenance. So you know our innovative idea, so we thought, was to really liberate the on-site maintenance teams that were that sit on site doing a couple work orders, taking for it, you know, not really just no tracking, no accountability. So we were going to liberate them and we're going to give them some independence so that they could go out and do work orders from a mobile format. So that, that we have a, a great software suite that we use called HappyCo. It allows us to, to, for them to log in on when they get to a, a, a job site or to a work order and clock in, clock outs. And it, it's fantastic. But that was too much freedom, right? The team the guys needed to be need to be in a pod format. So instead of being individual road guys doing whatever they want, leaving at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day or doing all these other things that I'm just like, who would ever do that? Like, uh, so having some accountability within that framework. So now we have a pod structure where they all ride to one site together. And, and there's a leader there who makes sure all the technology and all the work they're doing gets reflected in the technology that we're looking at for insights. So I'd say, you know, having too much hubris around this liberation uh, and making the job cool and, you know, respectful and respectable. I thought we were doing that and we are, but I think freedom is actually a responsibility more than it is a gift. Yeah, it is a gift. Always. I want to talk about the 55 million bucks that you raised because I'm a huge proponent of raising capital from high net worth investors. And I mean, they're called retail investors, but I think it's kind of a 
not that great of a term because they're basically the same investors that everyone has. The difference is they're direct consumer because you are going directly to them as opposed to going through two or three layers of funds. And I think it's a little bit unfair that some of these larger retail direct to investor investor groups have taken a lot of heat online or publicly because of deals blowing up because the big funds have had deals that have blown up too and overall i think investing in real estate directly through a gp is a very positive thing for a lot of people and i'd like to understand that strategy and why you decided to take that approach as opposed to going to some ESG fund or big private equity fund or a big family office? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question. And I, I think it's a great distinction, you know, in terms of retail and the kind of connotation with it, with retail investors and how the, the big brothers of the institutions, I, I feel like are kind of, you know, making it feel like small ball and small potatoes and unsophisticated folks. But you know, I've got a billionaire that's one of my retail investors, right? And he, he runs a really big business. But for, for us, I think that we were never, never able to find a connection with ESG and institutions in our mission. That, that seemed to always fall on deaf ears and seemed to really not be a consideration within any of the underwriting or any of the kind of pre-talks. So it was our own personal relationships and thankfully coming from the high-end custom construction world, a lot of my clients in that in that space are, are folks that invest with us today and folks that I have rapport with because building trust on, over one topic can translate to others, right? And, you know, I had built that trust with folks and it was just a natural, natural kind of segue for us, particularly as we talked to more and more institutions and more and more folks that were very sophisticated in their approach, but their hearts were hard, right? Their hearts were hard. And that didn't work for me. How do you build trust with your investors? Over-communicate, own it, own everything, right? Just because it, I'm not happy with our third party property manager, you know, and what their performance was last month. I'm, I'm not going to mention that third party in my, my communication to my investor. Here's what we did wrong. Here's what we need to do better. Here's what, here's the way we see it. Not, like ever passing the buck and really taking extreme ownership of the outcomes. And when you do that, they're not all going to be great outcomes, but folks just want to deal with people that they can understand. They're going to be clear with them. And I think, please, folks that are listening, don't miss the over-communication part. If you're over-communicating, that gives you a lot of grace to, to be yourself and to figure things out. But if you're going to communicate once a quarter or once, you know, once a year, you know, you're not going to build any trust. You're just going to take scrutiny because the one time you do talk to me, I, I'm going to have questions, right? So I think the biggest part is is, is over communicate, but but past that is, yeah, it's, it's it's in trying to 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 really own the outcomes because the last thing they want to hear is, hey, so and so did this. The broker told me this. That person said this. That's not who they invested their dollar their their money with. They invested their money with me. So I need to eat that. Right. And re represent that. And, and, and I'm going up or down with it. Right. And, and not be a, a guy that just points the finger to some person they're never going to talk to. In a market like Greenville or any of these Sunbelt markets, the basic case that 
real estate's going to appreciate over the long term seems very obvious. How have you structured your deals so that you as the GP are incented to hold it over the long term? And maybe how has that changed as you've evolved in the business? Maybe you didn't start out that way. I don't know. But what, what's been the changes in your structures as you've continued to invest? Yeah, as we've looked at deals, and I think we've always underwritten a five-year hold, you know, capital event, either re, you know, a refinance or a sell at uh, year five. You know, once we learned about the property tax abatement and got really clear on the, the future of Greenville, that they're not going to build any new supply. This stuff's going to be in vogue for, for the foreseeable future. What we've done is try to recapitalize our deals with other investors. Right. So if we're at the end of a deal, you know, we will bring in a local, another local manufacturer who loves affordable housing and, and he'll buy out our, our first tranche of retail investors. So they're able to take their exit, but we're able to stay in the deal with the same fundamentals with, uh, you know, recast projections. We're, we're currently trying to figure out a fund structure, how we could, in some ways, I, I think all the solutions have to be scaled now. I mean, I think that is the market that we're in. It's, you know, how do we lean into our size and, and come up with solutions that are really just a byproduct of our size? And so that fund model is, we're hoping to roll our entire portfolio into that. But, you know, we're, it's, this is very bleeding edge stuff, Jake. You know, I, I feel like, it's, and it's not all of what we do. So it's, I think that's entrepreneurship as well, learning how to like delegate. And that's not something that's a great strength of mine, but we're, I'm, I'm trying to learn it. So I hope it, it answers that because I've like screwed it up a hundred different times and we've gotten into a rhythm. We've raised funds, we've raised single assets. We've done a great job with communication, but we've recently like revamped our communication and put everything on Juniper Square, which has been a tremendous help for us. But the way that I've found success in doing it is by talking to other people. So I always ask people, how do you approach raising capital? Like what specifically are you doing? Let's say you have a deal. When I started my business, no one told me how to raise capital. So I always try and want to encourage people with some good practices. What What are you doing when a deal comes across you, your desk or as you're thinking about the fund, how are you building the runway to raise capital? Yeah, so... Communicate. I mean, so much of this is communication in terms of how you communicate your core thesis on paper, right? So all the things that you feel, all the juices you feel for a deal or a, a format for me that might be this fund, how am I going to get that into two, two to three sheets of paper, right? And the more complicated it is, the less absorption I'm going to get with the audience. So it's really understanding that on, on, on in kind of one case. So the first thing we'll do, we'll see a deal. It's is we're going to underwrite that deal, get the investment summary. What what are the key points and figures? Now, how do I communicate that within a deck? And for me, though, I love to talk to folks like you, and I, and I know you do this as well. Like, I want to send them that deck, then I'm going to call them, right? And that's how we just systematically tie it down and, you know, add a little urgency to it and say, hey, yeah, you're number five on the list, man. You know, like we've got a lot of investors, you know, I don't know what the next, the sixth through 88th guy's going to do, right? I know what they've done in the past, but yeah, I'm calling you first, right? So just what do you think? Is this something you like? It fits our core thesis. I think knowing who you are and that it fits you, if they know you, they'll know the deal fits you. 
right? So what I don't do is pitch new new ideas. You know, like I'm mean, in terms of you know, I'm not pitching Class A. I want to build something that's Class A. I want to get some. I want to build a Chipotle or Starbucks. No, it needs to be. You know, I think that's what's so important about carving out a, a niche and an identity within your real estate deals, so that it can be very obvious to a person that hey, this is what they do in three sheets of paper. Yes, I like it. Sure, I got more questions, and yeah, I like this. Let's do it. Put me down for X. So I think for me, it, that's the, the essence of it. And lastly, is put yourself in their shoes, right? You know, I can tell you how many investment or OMs I look at that I have to get to page twenty before I get to the like the returns. Like, 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 what if this is a, if you're sending this to an investor, shouldn't that be on page one? You know, like so they can then decide if they want to read the rest. Of, they'll read your bio and read all the cool things you've done. So it's like, what what are they actually like? Where are you communicating the, the information they're looking for? And I think so. Put put yourself in your shoes is also a, a helpful piece of advice. My head of investments called me this morning because he was watching a uh, like a webinar recording of a pitch for a hospitality investment, and we sometimes do that just to see what other people are doing, see how other people think about deals. And he's like, "Dude, I'm 18 minutes into this webinar right now." And they still haven't said how big the hotel is, like how many rooms this thing is. Like, I don't even know what the investment is. And yeah, it's, I always go with the basics out front. And one thing that I've also used, and I'm curious to know how you talk about this, is what your competitive edge is. So when you're doing a deal, like anyone could just go to South Carolina, find a deal wherever and go buy it. How do you approach your competitive edge and what is typically your competitive edge on a deal? Yeah, I, I think it, what, what it was and what it is today are you know grossly different. Very much like that proper example, which I'm going to go look into that even more after this. I can only imagine how they can underwrite a deal now knowing they're going to get that type of food and bev number, right? That, that their, their unique value is going to create this on the pro forma. For, for us, it's that I control all the pieces. So from the nonprofit side to get the tax abatement to the construction company that does the work and the, the labor associated to it, to the PM firm. And the dollars are also local. So I think that if we need to cut something, if we need to adjust something, we can, right? And uh, that's not a big deal if the, the property management company does it for a lower fee so that we can get into a deal and preserve this housing and generate this return for the investors. So I think the, the more, I don't like the term vertical integration as much as I love like containerized because these are actual businesses that we can take to market if we want to, right? And we have in some cases. So these containerized businesses being there to serve the overall mission and each of those, they can take a little haircut if we, if, if we want them to, to, to get in the right format and the right return thresholds for the investor. I mean, obviously as debt goes up, if you don't have anything that you can take down, then that's the game, right? So, uh, and we haven't always, again, we have not always been there. And, and again, that proper example, they can cut their food and bev or, you know, projection if they wanted to, right? They don't, they can add it or not add it. And, and that is their competitive advantage is who they are and the unique kind of skills and tools they built. Really, it's, it's, it's in the operational perspective, I think, more than anything. I want to unpack the construction management side because the property management to me is super obvious. You need someone to manage your properties, but how do you keep the construction side 
going, operating, if you don't have a consistent flow of renovations or CapEx projects. Maybe you do, but it feels like there could be times when there's down periods. So how do you think about that? And how did the business idea for that vertical or container come about? <laughs> I know, man. It's like all these... these. I like container. I think that's yeah. good. I like yeah. it. Well, that very first eight-unit deal that I did, I did it with a guy. Uh, his name's Antonio. And, and Antonio and I became great friends. And today, Antonio is still with me, right? So he's got like 10 guys with him. And instead of turning one complex, I think Antonio's crews have turned maybe 140 units this year. So, you know, and that's just part of what we do. And then on the exterior multi-scope projects, we bring in bigger general contractors. And, and really, it, I'd say it's more of a, you know, we're subbing a lot of this out. Outside of the unit turns, which I feel like are very personal and unique to who we are and how we do them, we're just managing, we're, we're, we're doing more construction. Man, our construction company is a construction management company in terms of what it should be, what it shouldn't be, how's it executed, and how's it de-risked by de- with deposits or and all that other all that other stuff and all that nuance. So I think to answer your question, you know, we're always going to have unit turns. I think in my mind, and the multi-scope stuff that's on a project basis, that's we sub that out, right? And we do have a couple crews that we work with, but they understand that. And the work stops, we stop. Why are your unit turns unique? What are you doing in there? I think over the years, by this point, I mean, it's been over four or 500 units we've turned. I think that the quality of those units, the material that we use, I think we're able to deliver a very market, cosmetically cool look and for a Walmart price point. So we, it's Target, right? We're doing it like Target, but we're charging like Walmart. So, I think, so just to give your listeners and even me some, some frame here, it's that we've put a lot of energy and a lot of time into evolving and getting better and better and better at it. From the contracts that we've been able to secure with folks like Electrolux, we get all of our appliances from them. So we get a very great discount. So we're like scale solutions, again, things that we're able to do in that unit and that we're able to use our whole organization to kind of create this situation where, hey, that is a thousand dollar you know dishwasher that you have in your unit that you're renting for a thousand dollars a month that doesn't make sense so but we can do that because walmart does stuff like that right what are the items in the unit that you think give the most roi so when you're like going through your wish list what are the ones that like no no no, these have to get done we can think about these floors are i think not only on a kind of recurring cost basis or like the to clean them you know, carpet cleaning, all this stuff. We, we re- replace all that with LV, LVP and LVT. So I think floors is a, is a huge impact on not only the revenue you get, but the, your expenses later on as an owner. Another really big piece that makes huge impact are your receptacles. So your receptacles and your switches, you know, you could imagine a 1970s switch plate that's been painted over 15 times. And no matter what you do to those walls, it looks like crap. So... Crisp, clean things like that. I think smell is also super, super important. And these are, I mean, smell is everything, right? I mean, you, I mean, there are hotels that you and I both go to that they have a signature smell, right? So we have a signature smell in our units so that, that when folks go in, it smells good. It, it smells inviting. It smells clean, right? Because you can't be clean, decent, and safe if, you're, if you don't smell clean, right? So I think for me, it's like just that the mar- as a sales and marketing guy, 
like, hey, how do we how do we sell a unit? How do we rent a unit is the floors need to be tight. The things they're going to touch like knobs and switches need to be clean and crisp and it needs to smell good. I love I've never heard of the smell. So do you like pump a scent through the air conditioning? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's brilliant. Do other people do that? Or is that something you guys came up with? (laughs) Never heard of that. A buddy of mine in, in, in Spain, I went to college with him for hotels. He designs unique fragrances for those hotels. Yeah. And that's what he was doing there. So I got that idea from him and I was like, you know what? Like that would be great for us. So at first we were doing like these kind of like glad like plugins and, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's how do you bring sand to the mountains, right? And when you bring it's import export, if I can bring sand to the mountains, there's yield. If I'm bringing sand to the beach, there's too much supply. There's no yield. If I can bring a good smell to a B class, C class property, I create edge. If I bring a good smell to a class A property, I haven't created anything. It all smells, it all should smell good, right? So I think that is, it's really thinking about our properties in a market rate format or where, what can we deliver that doesn't cost a whole lot more, but makes impact. What's part of your weekly rhythm? I'm always kind of curious how people work in companies. Like what does your week look like and how have you figured out kind of the tips, tricks, process to run the business on a weekly basis. Jake, I'm not even close, man. I'm, 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 I'm still, I still feel like I'm chasing my tail so many days. But my life was more asset management. And uh, before we started a property management company, you know, I was a week to week, month to month guy. I had the reports I checked, the days I met with teams. But once that property management company came in house for us, my life became day to day. And I am still trying to figure that out that rhythm out of not spending all my time in work and not designing processes, right? So I feel like I'm really kind of stuck at a point right now where it's a lot of chasing my tail. But, you know, for the most part, I'm going to, in an average week, I'm going to meet with all the teams, our CEO, that property management team. We've got a nonprofit arm and our legal that represents us with other owners. We'll have two meetings a week. And from there, it's really construction management and thinking about what our format is. My partner, I, I think the the greatest gift that I have is a partner that we can bounce ideas off of, right? That energy is contagious, right? So if he's taking some bad news too poorly, or if I'm taking some good news too good, right? We can level set. Not only that, at nine o'clock at night, you know, we can call each other and either talk each other off the ledge or talk each other up the hill, whatever, whatever, whatever it takes. And I think that type of accountability has been really, really cool. So the rhythm for me has been in partnership, I'd say, that I can point to, whereas I'm still trying to, we've grown so fast, I'm still trying to figure out what my day-to-day and week-to-week looks like because I'm not happy with the the cadence at this point. What drains your energy and what gives you energy? Detail drains my energy in in terms of just the, yeah, detail, just high high detail, but what gives me energy are, are people. And for me, I'm the visionary of our partnership. I enjoy community, vision, impacting people. That's what gives me energy. I could talk with folks all day, but on the opposite end, the knife cuts both ways. What kills me is sitting down and looking at a spreadsheet with my accountant. Like It's, it's like the worst. Do you have a three-year goal where you want to be in three years? Yeah. So we, we adopted the traction, traction in EOS a few years ago. We run our L10 meetings and believe in our 1 to 10-year goals. For us, we really want to have a place where all of our businesses can live and thrive 
and create an ecosystem. So we've got our acquisition company and all those other subsidiaries that are operating in different locations. I think it'd be amazing and great for us to be in one location and, and really become the thought leader, not only locally, but regionally around naturally occurring affordable housing assets and the way nonprofits can use their unique skills in a for-profit box, right? Because that's what we find more than more times than not is, hey, they're great nonprofits, but they don't understand how business works. No, you can't get back to me after next, next year's board meeting on if you want to buy this deal today. No, you can't. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> but what you can do is, you know, so it's really like educating and teaching them how to be more enterprising to get more impact. And their donors will be happy. And when they kind of deploy those skills on our tenants, we're happy about it. So I think it's really leaning further into th this niche that we find ourselves in and developing some type of, you know, scalable, franchisable approach for other either, you know, minority real estate owners or just local folks that can own, that want to own their neighborhoods and impact their neighborhoods. You know, I think that's, that's what we love to help and support. Well, the cool thing is since you're raising dollars from people that live in the places you invest, there's going to be a lot of political clout and capital that you're able to push towards implementing some positive change with whoever's in charge. That I have never thought about that, Jake, because I just thought about it. It's, that's yeah. the one good idea I had all week. So I gave it to you. That cuts that legislative risk, right? I wasn't thinking about our investors in terms of their own, you know, their own kind of reputations with local politicians and state politicians. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Like it, that, that's, I think that's, that's where I'd like to spend more time as well. Like with folks that are smart, like yourself, that there are so many synergies, Jake, you know, like a success looks really one of two ways. I mean, like it's, it's the principles are the same. So, and you usually can pick them out uh, in, in a person's story if they're being open and honest with you. And so spending time with guys like yourself and others that can continue to push me and to sharpen the iron that's in me. And I hopefully can sharpen the iron that's in them to quote Proverbs. Yeah, I think that's another goal of mine over the next few years. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is, what's your favorite hotel? My favorite hotel, I mean, we've talked, we've on, I've only talked about it a few times here, right? So the proper, I mean, I'm, I'm sold. You know, I've been, <laughs> my wife and I have been a lot of cool places throughout the world. And we did our honeymoon in Croatia and that we stayed at an, a, an amazing hotel there, but there was no scale. It was too boutique. I think the proper, I, I love that flex space. Hey, they're big enough to like scale, but not so big that they feel like a Hyatt or a Hilton or a Embassy Suites or any of those kind of brands. Can I ask you the same question? What's your, what's your favorite hotel brand? Ooh, tough question. Brian Delo, who's the CEO of Proper, listens to the show, actually, and I'm a big fan of Proper as well. I learned a lot from him, and I'm incredibly impressed by what they built. My favorite hotel, I would say, is experience-based, and it's often like who you're there with and who you're sharing the time with. So there's a hotel in Wyoming called Brush Creek Ranch, which is like a dude ranch kind of thing, and uh, you pay a lot of money to feel like a cowboy and shovel cow poop and eat nice food and the kids have a great time. Look, there we go. Yeah, this is a Triple Creek Ranch in Montana. It's very you know. similar. Yeah. I, I, I love that life. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's pretty high up. And then I recently went to a hotel in Europe called Chateau de la Messardière. 
And that was in Central Pay and pretty high up there. You should check it out. So there's a little, you know, roughing it one, which is not really roughing it. It's like Triple Creek Ranch style where, you know, it's the same vibe. It's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. I love that. That's so that's so funny, man. I, I I think it's we've had kids the last four years. We have two kids and you know, what has not been a part of our experience is like really leaning into hotels. The proper has actually been one of the few hotels I've a few trips I've been able to take by myself without my kids and family. And it's usually we're doing an Airbnb or we're going somewhere that's more ranchy or where there's room to roam. I'll re-listen. What did you say that the name of that place in Europe was? Chateau de la Messardiere. And actually, I interviewed the managing director of the hotel. He's on the podcast. But you got to check it out. It's awesome. And I think one of the reasons why it's so awesome is the owner has taken the approach that he never wants to sell the hotel and he wants his kids to own the hotel. So they kind of come up with these crazy ideas and execute. And you can tell that they're not just doing it for a financial motive and they're trying to create a culture and a family around it, which I feel at Brush Creek Ranch and I'm sure at Triple Creek Ranch is the same thing. But to your point on proper, like when you go on a solo business trip or a couple's trip, it's hard to find a better hotel. That hotel is filling a big white space between, it's basically a luxury hotel but it's a cool luxury hotel. So like it's a four seasons that has three deep at the bar at nine o'clock at night, which is just awesome. Right. And, and that's what, yeah. And, and those are the types of like things that can happen once you kind of know your demographic and know the white space that you're filling and what they're willing, what those, that demographic's willing to pay for. I mean, I, I've never, literally, I, I don't eat food in the room typically. Like, I mean, the snack bar was awesome. And I could tell that the housekeeper had some incentive to getting back in there and replenishing it. I could, and, I, and I, you could tell that was part of a, an SOP or a process. And, and for me, who lo- I love process, I was like, oh my goodness, this is, so I kept eating more chips. And I, uh, 20 bucks. Did you have the popcorn? The popcorn they have in that mini bar is really good. I did. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, surprise and delight. I mean, people are willing to pay for it. And I think it's all about setting yourself up so that you can, you know, if it's a smell in my unit, if it's the popcorn and uh, luxury hotel experience, so that when they get to like, wow, that's nicer than I thought it would be, you know, for for me the price point or for the hotel at a hotel in a hotel room, you know, you would not expect to have luxury popcorn. Exceeding expectations and delighting customers doesn't only have to be at the high end. I was recently talking to someone, and they're like, oh, I, I don't fly Southwest, and I'm like, you know, I actually like Southwest because you know what you're going to get. And they deliver what you're going to get or better basically every time. That's it. I mean, look at, I mean, we, we, I know we were referencing all these, these giants, but Target and Walmart and all these, I mean, it's, can you set expectations and over deliver, right? It's, it, you know, uh, they don't say you have to set high expectations. You just set expectations and just, just know that's the point. And then you just want to be just above that or sometimes a couple points above that. But I think, Sometimes folks are, because they don't know themselves and they haven't really faced themselves, they don't really know how to set expectations for themselves. So I think that that's kind of the, the inner workings of that is really understanding who you are, what you bring, how does your lived experience inform your operational perspective today? Mario, thanks for coming on Masters of Moments. Jake, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun, man. You ask great questions and, you know, it's, yeah, that idea, I mean, around my investors is something I'm going to think, think on. So thank you. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.